Sylvia Plath was sat at her typewriter in Northampton, Massachusetts, when she saw the lovely light blue shirt of the mailman and ran downstairs. It was Wednesday the 25th of June 1958, a starred day in Plath's journals, thanks to what arrived in the post. The letter was from Howard Moss, poetry editor for The New Yorker, who was accepting Plath's poem Muscle Hunter at Rock Harbour for publication in the magazine. At this realisation, Plath wrote in her journals, of ten years of hopeful, wishful waits and subsequent rejections, I ran yipping upstairs to Ted and jumping about like a Mexican bean. It was only after she had calmed a little that she finished reading Moss's letter and read that he was also accepting her poem Nocturne, which she called extremely fine. For the two poems, Plath received $377, enough to cover three months' rent of the apartment Hughes and Plath had found in Boston's Beacon Hill. The second poem had been inspired by the landscape around another Beacon 3,000 miles away. Beacon was the name of Ted Hughes's family home in Heptonstall, West Yorkshire, where Plath first visited in 1956. About two miles north of Heptonstall lies a wooded gorge, through which runs Hebden Beck. A 19th century cotton mill on the bank of the river is overlooked by the woods and the stony steeps of the valley known as Hardcastle Crags. Hello everybody and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about the poem Hardcastle Crags by Sylvia Plath. As we just heard, when the New Yorker accepted the poem in June 1958, it was under the title Nocturne. By the time it was published in the magazine in October, it was instead called Nightwalk, and at some other time, Plath was calling it Walk in the Night. It was when it was collected in her 1960 book, The Colossus, that it was finally called Hardcastle Crags. M.L. Rosenthal and Sally Gall suggest it may be the best poem in that first collection, and for me, it's definitely in with a shout. Bluff as it's humped in different hills, this poem looks at total annihilation in the face and turns away. With languid half-rhymes and a loose metre, it strolls through an immense, formidable landscape and even detours to the dawn of time, despite its physical action being simply a woman walking along a path and then heading back. I love this poem. I love its serene dreaminess, the sway of its sentences, once again spanning stanzas, just as we saw in The Jailer and Full Fathom 5, giving it that loping, effortless sound. I also love the setting. I grew up 15 or 20 miles away from Calderdale, and the landscape of this poem is very familiar to me. As I do what I usually do on these poetry episodes and walk you through the poem line by line, I'll point out what I think is so brilliant about what Plath does musically, and offer some critical commentary of mine, as well as look at what proper critics and Plath writers have had to say about it. But I won't be on my own. To talk about Hardcastle Crags, I'm joined today by Donnie Seacrest, a PhD candidate who has written about Rachel Carson as well as Sylvia Plath. I discovered Donnie by reading her brilliant essay, Stones, Turkey Necks and Gizzards, which focuses on the grotesque humour and metaphors of masculinity in Plath's novel The Bell Jar. There's a link to Donnie's article in the episode description box below. I implore you to read it if you're a fan of The Bell Jar or just Plath in general. Now, to begin our conversation, I asked Donnie why she chose to talk about Hardcastle Crags. I chose Hardcastle Crags. Um, so as I, I've told you in our conversations before that my, my focus, my specialty with Plath and uh, literature in general um, isn't poetry, but with my own research, I'm, I'm a PhD candidate at Texas A&M University, 
um, here in here in the states, and I really moved my focus into environmental concerns and environmental research. And um, my my research interests have, have kind of circled around uh, gender, ecology, and humor. And so this poem from from the Colossus and other poems. Um, this first collection, she has a lot of environmental themes um, coming out in, in these works. So I thought it ties in to my research currently and I'm about to get started. I'm kind of in the weeds writing my dissertation right now. So I, I thought this was a good place to come back to. But I also chose Hardcastle Crags because I associate this poem in particular um, with so much of the mood and, and spirit that I associate with Plath's writing, uh, which I like to think of her as this, at this point in her life or, or what's coming through in this poem as this kind of ambitious, hopeful time um, and, and there is this quietness throughout um, the collection that's just stunning and I think less talked about than the, the fiery boldness of the poems in Ariel. Um, and, and so I love what, I have a quote here, what Al Alvarez, uh, you know, fellow poet, um, he reviewed Plath's work and, and of this collection, he reviewed this collection and he said, um, in his review of Colossus, he wrote that their quote is this sense of threat as though she were constantly menaced by something she could see only out of the corners of her eyes. And I think that just encapsulates um, the power that I get from this collection and this poem in particular. Absolutely. It's, it's like a the whole poem is like the, the threat is palpable straight away. But where is it coming from? Exactly, exactly. It's so cool. And, you know, she pays particular attention to to the landscape. And in this, you know, relatively short poem, it's, you know, nine stanzas, each one about five lines. Um, but she creates this expansiveness of the space, but not in this like cliche, generalized way, but infusing it with this kind of rich history and mythologizing of the land, which is so cool. Hardcastle Crags is a difficult poem to date precisely. Nancy D. Hargrove talks about it in her essay on Plath's poems of 1957, suggesting it was written that summer, but allowing for the possibility of it being written between May and June of the following year. In his chronology of Plath's poems, Ted Hughes dates it to 1957, but of the 21 he assigns to that year, only five can be confirmed as such, according to Hargrove. It was a difficult year for Plath, a half year of drudgery, as she called it, spent completing coursework and exams at Cambridge, and not writing as many poems as she would have liked. She had been married to Ted Hughes for a year, and whilst on one hand she was almost evangelical in her support for his work, she also felt overshadowed by him at times. In September of 1956, she recorded feeling sick, sterile fear in the face of his great creativeness. Interestingly, that same month, she began a short story called Afternoon in Hardcastle Crags, a secret story, slight and subversive, as she put it, a story about being married to a genius. Heather Clark writes that while Sylvia frequently bragged to others about Ted's genius, here it is a source of irony. 
The visit to Calderdale inspired several poems, including Two Views of Withens, following a trip to the Bronte Parsonage and Top Withens, the remote farmhouse which supposedly is the model of the Earnshaw House in Wuthering Heights. Of these West Yorkshire poems, Nancy D. Hargrove calls Hardcastle Crags the most complex for making symbolic use of the landscape in the manner of T.S. Eliot. Plath was delighted by the incredible wild green landscape of bare hills around Heptonstall and the gothic desolation of the town, its graveyard, as Heather Clark notes, incidentally full of greenwoods, her grandmother's anglicised maiden name. It was also the name Plath used for her narrator in the bell jar, Esther Greenwood. Controversially, Plath herself was buried in Heptonstall, surrounded by hundreds of graves bearing the name of her most famous alter ego. Plath's mother found the town mean and ugly, despite being impressed by this wild, strange part of England. Heather Clark writes that when Aurelia visited Heptonstall in 1961, she would find that years of soot pollution had blackened the town's gritstone homes, and the sky seemed tombstone grey. Do you think it's... It is a literal landscape, or is it a, is it a kind of a, a, a hodgepodge of here and there? Right. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you asked that because I do think it it must be like a mixture of of here and there. Um, in 2017, I was lucky enough through my research at UNC um, University of North Carolina Wilmington. Um, I was a Wentworth Fellow, and I, I got to travel up to Massachusetts and and visit some of the you know uh, Plath sites, and and I went to um, each of her childhood homes and. Uh, in Jamaica Plain, the um, suburb of Boston, where, where it's like her first childhood home, I was just struck by all of the, the roads in this like quaint, like beautiful kind of like farmland, rural area. Um, the roads were like just lined with these fences completely made of stone. And mm -hmm. I just thought it was so cool and just really when I read this poem and, and she's talking about these steely streets and kind of the sounds and, and shaking of, of the tender, I can just picture her, you know, in her patent black leather shoes, clip clopping down these streets <laughs> with, right? With the, the sounds um, echoing off those, those stone walls. Um, but of course, I know those those um, stone walls are, are elsewhere in the world too. So, yeah, I like to think she took inspiration from those early years in Boston as well. Um, you mentioned those echoes, and um, I wanted to ask you about the the auditory qualities, especially of that opening stanza. It's so clever how she's describing um, Flint like. Uh, flint-like feet on the steely street echoing around and it, and also enacting this echo with racket tacking black it's a poem you just want to read aloud isn't it definitely yes and if you would like to please please do yeah yeah um do you want me to read the whole thing or uh up to you i mean yeah wh wh why not so, so it's only a short poem isn't it yeah i'll jump in okay hardcastle crags Flint-like, her feet struck such a racket of echoes from the steely street, tacking in moon-blued crooks from the black stone-built town that she heard the quick air ignite its tender and shake, a firework of echoes from walls to wall of the dark dwarfed cottages, 
but the echoes died at her back as the walls gave way to fields and the incessant seethe of grasses riding in the full of the moon, manes to the wind, tireless tide as a moonbound sea moves on its route. I'm going to stop it there for a moment and go through this first section of the poem. As with The Jailer and Full Fathom 5, I'm using sentences and not stanzas to divide it up, since the stanzas frequently finish halfway through a thought. For those not watching on YouTube, the section Donnie has just read is the first two and a half stanzas. I think it's a brilliant, nonchalantly cool start to a poem. Coolness is very hard to define or defend, but for me, cool is the word. We begin with the striking of flint. and Later in the poem, we have the protagonist pared down to a pinch of flame. Finally, a small heat snuffed out. It's like Plath has struck a match, watched it blaze, burn down and fizzle out for the duration of the poem. That, for me, is part of the poem's coolness. So flint-like, her feet struck such a racket of echoes on the steely street. Let's talk about rackets of echoes. This stanza is a racket of echoes, of rhymes and half-rhymes that stack up and redouble, like a feedback loop, like echoes booming so high they dwarf their original. Flint-like, her feet struck such a racket of echoes from the steely street. So feet, steely, street, struck such tacking in moon-blued crooks from the black, stone-built town, struck such crooks, racket, tacking, black. The rhymes are so packed in, it's like hitting a ping-pong ball against very narrow walls. The ricochet is so cramped, it buzzes like a hornet. And the fact that the rhymes aren't perfect, feet and steely, racket and tacking, imitates the imperfection of echoes. Echoed footsteps are immediately recognisable as footsteps, and yet they are a distortion. They don't sound the same as your actual footstep. I find it so satisfying when poetry does this. The meaning and the music, the sound and the sense, are perfectly aligned, reinforcing one another. So let's look at the meaning of the words Plath chooses to rhyme. Now there's an old rule in poetry, or not rule, but idea, that rhymed words, taken out of context of the poem, should gesture towards what the poet is talking about. So, for example, in Shakespeare's most famous sonnet, he says, But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. Shakespeare's writing here about beauty, timelessness, the monument of his verse allowing the radiant subject of his poem to triumph over time and live on, an immortal summer's day. If we take the rhymed words from the quatrain I just read, we have fade, shade, and the awkwardly apostrophed oast and grossed. We have a sense from them, a, a dim sense maybe, of the tone of the poem. The words have a relationship with one another beyond just rhyming. Fade and shade both refer to illumination, and what one owes often grows. Uh, we might think they're of spiralling debts, but to throw some light in with the shade, we might also pick up on a sense of immeasurable devotion from the growth of an oath. To bring it back to Plath and her racket of echoes, her feet don't rhyme with any old word that happens to have an E sound in it. They rhyme with the thing they strike, the steely street, just as the racket is tacking off black stone. After she ignites the air with a firework of echoes, she leaves the town and the echoes die at her back. And again, the sound obeys the sense. The rattling echoes give way just as the walls give way to the incessant seethe of grasses. But before we leave the town, we see that the cottages are dark and dwarfed, which helps to emphasise the cacophony of echoes. It's as if she's let off a firework in a very small space. These internal rhymes are like a whiz-bang let off in a low-ceilinged study. 
If the curtains weren't twitching in Heptonstall that night, it's because they were blown off. But are the cottages dwarfed only by the sound? At this point in the poem, it sounds almost as if the protagonist is dwarfing them. As the creator of such tremendous noise, she seems magnified, giant-sized. But as we press on, it begins to sound more like the cottages are dwarfed by the formidable landscape that lies beyond them. Now that we've got into the second stanza, we can talk about the actual rhyme scheme of the poem. We've talked about all this internal rhyme, but what about the rhymes on the line ends? The nine synquains, five-line stanzas, follow an A-B-A-B-A rhyme scheme, but the rhymes are often very faint. From the lines of the first stanza, we have struck, black, shake, and then street and ignite. The second stanza goes wall, walls, full, cottages, grasses. Now, obviously, words like cottages and grasses don't remotely rhyme, but they have a kind of likeness. Not so much rhymes as echoes. And what's interesting is, when you combine the internal rhymes with the rhymes of the line endings, you can almost plot the decay of an echo as it ricochets, bouncing off walls and on each bounce becoming less and less like its original sound. So in line one and two we have wall to wall, identical, but then that first wall is positioned in the rhyme scheme to rhyme with walls two lines later. So we have wall to wall and then wall to walls, and then as we press further, as the echoes die at her back, the rhyme scheme brings us to full, wall to wall, wall to wall to walls, wall to wall to walls to full. Imagine shouting your name into a tunnel. The sound that bounces off the, the nearest surface sounds most like your own voice, but the one that's ringing off the, the, the far recesses sounds unearthly, ghostly. It's, it's, it, there's no word anymore, it's just a kind of ring, a sheen. And we have the same sort of perishing sound at work here. Wall to wall, wall to wall to walls, wall to wall to walls to full. To go back to Platt's first line, she kind of plots her rhyme scheme in miniature. Flint-like her feet struck. Contains no rhyme at all, and yet it still kind of sounds symmetrical. The two syllables flint and feet alliterate, and like and struck have that same spiky bite from that K sound. And though as we leave the town, those echoes clear for a moment, with the freedom of those grasses riding in the full of the moon, they quickly return as we hear the paradoxical static motion of the landscape. The grasses, tireless, tied as a moon-bound sea, moves on its route. The grasses like the manes of galloping horses, but horses galloping on the spot and getting nowhere, like a restless sea, tirelessly moving, but never changing position. And with this new kind of crampedness come more echoes. Riding in the full of the moon, manes to the wind, tireless, tied as a moon-bound sea, moves on its route. Tireless, tied, moon, moon, moves, route. The contradiction between freedom of movement and a sense of being leashed is nicely described by M.L. Rosenthal and Sally Gall in their appreciation of this poem, saying that it is on its way to the discovery of how to write at a pitch of pure intensity that is like being carried away yet somehow guiding a runaway horse. The last thing I want to mention about this section is something the poem reminded me of. In and amongst all of Platt's sounds, I heard some other echoes, echoes of Dylan Thomas, specifically the opening of Under Milk Wood. It is spring. Moonless night in the small town, starless and Bible black, the cobbled streets silent in the hunched quarters and rabbit's wood, limping invisible down to the slow black, slow black, crow black fishing boat bobbing sea. Part of it seems like it's about a poet, like collecting images and then running back when they've got enough. Like it's a, almost like a transactional thing of scoop, that scoop of a head, collecting those echoes. Or, or, maybe, and it's, or it's a really literal telling of, of like clearing your head after all of those flinty 
all you can hear is yourself, your own footsteps, going out, hearing nothing, kind of intimidated and then running, running back. Do you think there is an upper hand there or, or is it, is it a, as you say, a kind of acknowledgement of respect and then? I think, yeah, I think it's clear the upper hand are, are those environmental forces. Mm. Um, and so definitely, and, and I think there's that acknowledgement there that, yeah, I can't, I can't touch this. This isn't for me. Um, but I, I love the thinking about it. Um, like you said about this transaction. And I hadn't considered that um, viewpoint of this female character who's also a poet. And, and of course, obviously Plath drew inspiration from her own life all over the place. Um, but there is that transactional nature. And you know, she even talks about it in the sixth stanza that all the night gave her in return for the paltry gift of her bulk and the beat of her heart was the humped indifferent iron of its hills. And I, I love that thinking about how um, that, that gift comes out in this poem. Here is Donnie reading the next section of Hardcastle Crags, taking us from the second half of stanza three to the first line of stanza five. Though a mist wraith wound up from the fissured valley and hung shoulder high, ahead it fattened, to no family featured ghost, nor did any word body with a name, the blank mood she walked in. Once past the dream peopled village, her eyes entertained no dream, and the Sandman's dust lost luster under her foot soles. So dream peopled village, also sounding rather like under Milkwood there. Nancy D. Hargrove called this section an extremely weak passage in which Plath describes the protagonist's total isolation awkwardly alluding first to a West Yorkshire superstition and then to a popular 50s song, Mr. Sandman, Bring Me a Dream. I have to disagree with Hargrove here. I don't find anything awkward about these references and I don't think we're jerking from Yorkshire superstition to hit American song at all, but holding one superstition up against another. First, we have the geographically and culturally appropriate reference to ghosts haunting the moorland. We are, after all, in Bronte country. And then as for the Sandman, while the song by the Cordettes might be the first thing you think of, and no doubt Plath had heard it because it came out in 1954, she was also a keen reader of Hans Christian Andersen, and her presentation of the Sandman seems to me to chime far less with the Cordettes than with Andersen's depiction. In the song, the Cordettes are imploring the Sandman to bring them a dream, to make him cute, to give him wavy hair like Liberace. It's a romantic fantasy in which they are trying to dream up an ideal lover. And the only reference to eyes in the song is the Cordette's request that their lover's eyes have a come-hither gleam. In Plath's poem, she writes, Her eyes entertained no dream, and the Sandman's dust lost luster under footsoles. The reason I bring up eyes is that with Hans Christian Andersen's Sandman in mind, the eyes are particularly relevant, as according to the story, the Sandman would sprinkle dust in children's eyes in order to make them close. Only then could he bring them a dream. There's no reference to dust either in the Cordette song, only the magic beam of the Sandman. So I definitely don't think it's a Cordette's reference. I think, I think both the Cordettes and Plath are using the Sandman mythos just in very different ways. So why are we suddenly talking about northern superstitions and fairy tales? Personally, I think it's the protagonist clutching around at meaning, but finding that her fingers only close on mist and a handful of dust. 
Out here in the wilderness, away from the town she dwarfed with her firework of echoes, she is isolated and alone. In this utter isolation, even unsettling supernatural stories would be of some comfort, provide some token of civilization. This is a landscape that is not just unaccommodating to her, but to her species. She can find no word to body with a name the blank mood she walks in. Language, that most human invention, has failed her. It is a pitiless landscape, pitiless as the A-line rhymes of this stanza. Ghost, past, dust. Given the possible geographic proximity to Bronte country, and I found it quite funny that the there is a kind of typically scary scene of out in the wilds that's hinted at but immediately denied this you know appearance of a family featured ghost but no that didn't happen um is this sort of doubling down on the fact that the the uh, the indifferent hill the indifferent iron hills are, are sort of scary enough i i definitely think so i think that totally tracks um kind of with the the off the cuff reading that i'm trying to do right now that it's like that's not for me and i can leave it alone because it's almost like a, a family featured ghost sounds a lot more comforting than <laughs> i know right absolutely <laughs> absolutely rather than these seething grasses um yeah, and I like this too. I like thinking of it again. Of course, there it's obvious in the um, with all the natural imagery she's creating. These really fresh images of nature, too. But I think I think it does again the turn with that last line really classifies this as as a environmentalist poem or a poem with environmentalist concerns and of course i'm not the first to say that um, in my article on the bell jar i actually quote a scholar um, scott knickerbocker has written some eco-criticism on some of her poetry and just amazing scholar tracy brain i think in her book um, has has a whole chapter devoted to Plath's environmentalism here. But what I love about rereading and thinking about environmentalism, particularly in this poem, is I think she's hitting on something that's, you know, coming, we're coming back to in the current um, environmental literature is looking at these um, indigenous points of view where there's this acknowledgement of the power of nature and there's this decentering of the human and this poem with the the decentered narrator the um, just minimal inf information we get about the the person at the center of this poem I think is, is a nice way to play around with that idea of um, de- Anthrop anthropomorphizing and um, having a, a less anthropocentric viewpoint here. It's, it feels like a kind of sat satire of a, of a romantic poet. Right, absolutely, you know? yeah, yeah. Like a Wordsworth, sure. Wordsworth character swaggering out and loving nature, but also conquering it. This is the opposite. All right, here's our third section read by Donnie, filling in the rest of stanza five and stanza six. The long wind, paring her person down to a pinch of flame, blew its burdened whistle in the whirl of her ear, and like a scooped-out pumpkin crown, her head cupped the babble. 
All the night gave her in return for the paltry gift of her bulk and the beat of her heart was the humped indifferent iron of its hills and its pastures bordered by black stone set on black stone. The long wind, again, very pitiless sounding. I know exactly that kind of unrelenting northern headwind that just pummels your face like Botox. It pairs her person down, stripping away her humanity until it is just a pinch of flame. That flint-struck firework from the start of the poem is now just a pinch of flame. The wind blew its burdened whistle in the whirl of her ear, and like a scooped-out pumpkin crown, her head cupped the babble. This reminds me of the Colossus, where the narrator of that poem squats in the Colossus's ear, out of the wind. Here the wind blasts, burdened with noise, so much it fills her as if she was a scooped-out pumpkin. Talk about going for a walk to clear your head. Joe Gill also connects this poem to the Colossus, writing, The resonant opening is met with a blank, mute disregard. The speaker starts off with such high hopes. Like a Colossus, she dominates the domestic environment, dwarfing the houses. Yet free of the local and familiar, she can make no sense of what she sees and hears. In stanza five, exposed and alone, she attends to the voices within, or babble, and hears only confusion. We see her hollow head cupping the babble. She is just something that noise bounces off senselessly. So we have the wind whistling through the scooped out pumpkin crown, but as Gil suggests, we're also dealing with voices from within. I've talked on the podcast before about the particularity of Plath's voice, not her poetic voice, but her real voice. Her accent, a striking blend of American and Northern English. Certain words jump out to me in her recordings as unexpectedly Northern. Listen to Ted Hughes here, reading from his poem, Six Young Men. From where these sit, you hear the water of seven streams fall to the roarer in the bottom. And through all the leafy valley, a rumouring of air go. And now compare it to Plath reading the third stanza of Hardcastle Crags. Though a mist wraith wound up from the fissured valley. Valley. Fissured valley. <laughs> if you read Hughes, his voice is pretty consistent over a career much longer than Plath's. Read Hawk in the Rain, read Birthday Letters. You can hear his accent come through in both. Plath, on the other hand, sounds in some places quite like T.S. Eliot. Rather proper, rather aristocratic, English-sounding Bostonian, with its exhausted melancholy. The women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Elsewhere, she sounds more tousled and northern, a little like Hughes. And I've already suggested earlier in this poem, she sounds a little bit like Dylan Thomas here and there. By the time we get to the aerial poems, she has completely changed voice again. Maybe it's a little crude, but I, I find it very tempting to imagine this poem as a representation of being overburdened with noise, of voices, of a poet's influences, perhaps trying to shield that pinch of flame that is your own and not have it drowned out. The scooped out pumpkin head, I think, is ingenious, bottling in one image several strands of the poem's meaning, most immediately as the protagonist being a sort of receptacle for sound, but also remembering that pinch of flame and the recurring references to fire, begun by that flint-striking start. What does a scooped out pumpkin head usually have in it? A candle. She's gone from setting off fireworks of echoes to guarding her pinch of flame against long winds. Jack-o'-lanterns take their name from the folkloric will-o'-the-wisps, lights that appear over bogs and marshes, more frequently than not to mislead travellers. But jack-o'-lanterns, unlike will-o'-the-wisps, are a particularly American tradition. So the third strand the pumpkin completes, in my opinion, 
is the impression of a chaos of influences. We've had European fairy tales with Hans Christian Andersen. We've had Yorkshire superstitions with the Bronte-like Mist Wraith. And now we have an icon of American Halloweens. So to complement or reinforce the confusion of sounds, the confusion of voices, we also have a confusion of beliefs. All the knight gave her in return for the paltry gift of her bulk and the beat of her heart was the humped indifferent iron of its hills and its pastures bordered by black stone set on black stone. In return, she says. This sounds very much then like the protagonist was expecting a transaction to get something from this walk. This is what makes it sound to me like the poet is maybe trying to clear their head, but also net themselves some imagery or pinch some sounds, make like a romantic poet and head into the hills for a helping of inspiration, only in this case to be deafened by wind and rebuffed by the uncaring landscape. We'll talk about Plath and humour later on. There's a kind of joke of this poem, which is the narrator is a blank with a, a scooped out head, and the poem is just a relentless stream of images like brilliant images it couldn't be less of an empty blank of a poem exactly right right totally and and I loved how you brought this up that we don't know much about the subject of the poem right so we have the the narrator who who is kind of this third person omniscient thing this entity narrating who kind of has this long view of history, but also this ability to, to foresee if, if this, you know, subject gendered female, you know, were to go along this path, she'd be, you know, crushed, crushed to mere quartz grit, um, as Plath writes. So um, a lot of interesting factors going into this one. And here's Donnie reading our final section of Hardcastle Crags, from the last word of stanza six to the last word of stanza nine. Barns, guarded broods, and litters behind shut doors. The dairy herds knelt in the meadow, mute as boulders. Sheep drowse stoneward in their tussocks of wool, and birds, twigs sleeping, wore granite ruffs, their shadows, the guise of leaves. The whole landscape loomed absolute as the antique world was once in its earliest sway of lymph and sap, unaltered by eyes, enough to snuff the quick of her small heat out. But before the weight of stones and hills of stones could break her down to mere quartz grit in that stony light, she turned back. So we start off with the image of life being turned to stone, the dairy herds are mute as boulders, the sheep drows stoneward, and the birds wear granite ruffs. It's repetitive, it's uncompromisingly frank, stone on stone on stone. Appropriate for a poem with a title as stony as Hard Castle Crags. Nancy Hargrove writes that she sees the animals as taking part in this silent but devastating conspiracy against humanity. They are shut up in barns, in effect shutting her, the protagonist, out. We have a chill of prehistoric indifference as Plath compares the whole landscape to the antique world in its earliest sway of lymph and sap, unaltered by eyes. It is futile to imagine one having any dominion over such a landscape, laughable even to imagine that you can understand something as inconceivably old. Plath is so good at making you shiver at your own puny wingbeat of a lifespan in comparison to the ancient world. I think of the sea in Full Fathom 5 on which the ages beat like rains, 
And similarly, to imagine the world in its earliest sway of lymph and sap can be doubly unsettling, making us think of our own feeble softness. We're just squelching bags of lymph and sap in a hard world of indifferent iron, after all. But reading it, you also feel paradoxically and powerlessly protective of the world, thinking of it in its earliest sway, cast alone in a hard universe, the unlikeliness of it. For me, it makes me cringe the way a fontanelle makes me cringe. That is much too soft for a world full of corners. Enough to snuff the quick of her small heat out, but before the weight of stones and hills of stones could break her down to mere quartz grit in that stony light, she turned back. What do you notice first from that? We've got the final spin on the flame imagery, but what sticks out for me is again the repetitive stoniness. Stones and hills of stones could break her down to mere quartz grit in that stony light. You can hear on the recording of Plath how deliberately she drones those stones. But before the weight of stones and hills of stones could break her down to mere quartz grit in that stony light. Like wall to wall to walls, like black stone on black stone, Plath is relentlessly stony. The reason I think she rhymes words with themselves here is to emphasise the howling meaninglessness the protagonist is presented with. I talked earlier about meaningful rhyme words in poems, words that have a relationship beyond just sounding the same, shade and fade from that um, Shakespeare example. And I think part of the reason why poets do this is a kind of wish fulfilment. We instinctively want there to be meaning in rhyme, which is why you find rhyme so frequently in advertising. Don't just book it, Thomas Cook it. A travel agency is here trying to give you the impression that they are obscurely qualified in booking you a holiday because their name has an uck sound like the word book. We know it's nonsense, but we can't help liking or at least noticing rhyme, and so our ears might be a little bit conned even if our brains aren't. By contrast, to rhyme words with themselves sounds hollow. There's no transformation, there's no echo anymore, it's just a blunt repetition. There's nothing flint-like. Nothing sparks when you hold one word up against itself. Our protagonist left the town in search of meaning, something in return. But all she got was deafened with howls and given the cold shoulder by that uppity hill. She turns back because despite whatever reason she left the town, meaning and transformation were available to her there. She wielded echoes like fireworks. She dwarfed the town. The protagonist was not ready for the full strength of that landscape. It would have broken her down to mere quartz grit. She wouldn't have got the pearl that Plath quite often writes about in regard to hard-won rewards. She sensed all she would get in return was mere grit, and so she turned back. I don't see this as a defeat so much as an acknowledgement of limitations. She walked as far as she could go. Unlike the tireless tied grasses galloping on the spot in the full of the moon, our protagonist still has agency enough to turn back, to leave, and to trade the full of the moon for the moon-blued crux of the town. With the narrator being a blank, the landscape gains more power and more personality than the the human. I mean, the 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 inert, non-sentient aspects of the landscape, even if they're indifferent, they they at least have an edge. Whereas she, if we if we are to call her she, um, is a, is a blank. Um, mm -hmm. And I wondered why this is. Whether it was a, a submission to nature or. Right. With that scooped out head, it almost feels like she's doing it on purpose, like casting her head, trying to fill herself or something. Why do you think that is? Yeah, yeah. I, I love this um, thinking about um, nature having the edge. I love that you use that word. And I think that also ties back to what we were talking about of how 
Plath brings about that effect. And, and she's using that incessant seething of the grass to do it. And, and these other moments of characterizing the landscape um, in this not necessarily a friendly way, um, but really a more unsettling way. And, and so I love this thinking about it as, as, you know, does nature have the upper hand? And, and I, I love what's so interesting about this is yes, it could be this poem of this epic of this small kind of nameless subject, female subject, woman character facing nature. But what I love about it is that it doesn't end in this conquering or necessarily a submission. Mm -hmm. I think that this character, um, the subject of the poem, I think she sees the, the immense power of, of these natural forces that she's encountering and, and she chooses to turn back. And I think that is, is a power in her own right. And I, I mean, I think there are all sorts of great allegories and so much symbolism in here to where we could tie this to, okay, what is Plath doing? Is, um, is this, you know, immense nature, this overwhelming, not quite uh, welcoming nature, is this supposed to symbolize perhaps, uh, you know, the, the mood of the era of the 1950s and 60s, um, really, you know, pronounced oppression of women, um, and I think it's I think it's almost more interesting in that to think of it as um, less broad and less generalized, and just thinking of this woman and this distinctly feminine experience of you know coming into contact with these forces greater than oneself, and that the feminine re feminine reaction in this this battle between uh, a small person against large nature, that instead of submitting or trying to conquer, which could be like a really colonialist reading, um, this female character turns back and, and, you know, kind of stays in her own lane and is smart enough to recognize um, what's not hers, I think, is one reading of this. Because it does all, it all turns, literally turns on, on that last, I mean, it could end at crush to quartz grip, couldn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Hardcastle Crags. Huge thank you to my guest, Donnie Seacrest. Make sure that you check out her article linked in the episode description box below. And tune in again tomorrow for an extended conversation with Donnie where we talk more about Plath, Donnie's work, and squishiness, squishiness and hardness in the work of Plath. We talk about the bell jar and we talk about, a bit more about Hardcastle Crags and some other poems as well. Really hope you enjoyed this video. If it's the first one you've seen, I've done a, a few more like this on Plath Poems. There will be uh, links below as well. And there's plenty more on the way. Until then, happy reading.
once passed the dream-peopled village, her eyes entertained no dream, and the sandman's dust lost luster under her foot-soles. 